We are continuing our series through the letters of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're at the very central one today, uh, number four out of seven, and that is the letter to the church at Thyatira, uh, and it is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Uh, Follow along with me if you have your Bibles. I never know if it's up there because I'm down here anyway. But if you have your Bibles, Revelation 2, 18 to 29, to the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent for her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them into pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I have a confession to make as a pastor. I think I'm not alone among my colleagues in pastoral ministry. We tend toward being, some of us, people pleasers. Shock and awe. Um, We we like to make people happy. We like people to like what we're doing. We like people to, to like us. Now, some of you may also carry this characteristic of people-pleasing. You don't like it when people don't like you. You don't like it. You don't really like to say those difficult things to people uh, that challenge them because they might not like it. They might not receive it well. And that is why pastors have to preach some passages that aren't so easy. And the judgment... Uh, meted out to Jezebel and her followers in this passage is not easy to hear. It is harsh. And if we, as pastors, are only people-pleasing, only speaking the message the messages that are nice and kind, and, and only focused on the love of Christ and forget the judgment of Christ, what we end up doing is preaching a warped gospel that is actually not the gospel at all. So therefore, even as one who would really rather you like me then challenge you so that you may not. I'm going to challenge you anyway because that's my job as someone who is faithful to the word. And it's our job as we remain faithful to the word to be willing to hear difficult words and to wrestle with what it means to serve a God who is loving and kind but also ultimately the judge of every activity and every person under heaven. So, Thyatira. Thyatira was not a, 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 
a well-known city, not a powerful city like some of the others we've looked at. It was actually sort of the gateway to Pergamum, which is the city we looked at last week. Thyatira was smaller. It was not, um, not a fortress at all. In fact, it was sort of, uh, it served the role in the valley as, as um, people would come through the valley as a protection of Pergamum, which was, as we remember, the capital city and a city of great importance. People would attack Thyatira first, and hopefully not get to Pergamum was the idea. Not, not the best um, position to be in. Uh, Thyatira was not uh, a wealthy city. It was not a, an important hub of, of activity, but it was an industrial city. It was a city where there was um, a plant that created a, a purple dye, and if you know from scripture, uh, if you know the histories, purple was the most expensive dye, the most difficult to get, and this plant uh, would produce a little bit of that dye, so uh, the people of Pergamum or of Thyatira would use that and make garments. So there was a garment industry, there was a bronze industry, uh, there were a number of different industries there in Thyatira. Now, you might remember Lydia from the book of Acts. She was, uh, Paul met her in Philippi, and she came to Christ and became a leader within the church. She was from Thyatira, it says, and she was a seller of purple cloth. So uh, she may have been the one to take the gospel back to Thyatira. We don't know, but uh, another reminder of this um, connection of uh, Thyatira with this purple cloth and with one of the early leaders of the church. Thyatira is the smallest of all the towns uh, that we find these letters written to in Revelation 2 and 3, but it's the longest letter. And as you know, each of the letters has something, uh, a commendation for the church, and each of the letters, most of the letters, have something against the church, a complaint that Jesus has about them. Now, Thyatira's commendation is only one verse long and not very many words, but it's really a good one. I think most churches would love to hear this about themselves. It's in verse 19. Jesus says to them through John, I know your deeds and your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than what you did at first. Now, if I heard that about Ridley Park Presbyterian Church, that we are a church that does good things, known by our deeds, that we are a loving church, that we are a faithful church, and that we serve and persevere in the faith, I would think, what negative could there be? Those are wonderful things. And then on top of that, they are, he says, you're doing more than what you did at first. So they're a growing church, at least, if not in numbers, in service. So this is, looks like a very healthy church, and for those who remain faithful to the truth, it is a healthy church, but there is a threat. And that's where we get into the complaint against the church, and that threat is about a woman that Jesus calls Jezebel, may, may not be her name. Jezebel, if, if you know the Old Testament, was um, a very evil woman who was out to get the people of Israel back in the day. She's the one who um, challenged uh, the prophets and caused all kinds of grief for the believers in the day. And so Jesus probably is just saying, this woman's like that. She's out to get you. But there's a very big difference between the Jezebel of the Old Testament and this Jezebel. That Jezebel was outside the church. 
This Jezebel was inside the church. She set herself up as one of the faithful and called herself a prophet and said, I have special knowledge that you don't have and you can learn from me and learn extra things, things that will make you better. But the fact of the matter is what Jezebel shared, what she said was truth was actually falsehood. And just like so many of these other letters, what she would encourage people to do, you can find it in verse 20, uh, she led them into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, it's interesting, and this is an awkward aside that I think is important anyway. Uh, Paul says in, in his letters, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols for some people to do that if their conscience is clear. Now, it's important to understand that this is a different thing here than it was there. Uh, it, for Paul, it was the food that had been sacrificed to idols that was then in the marketplace and people, some Christians said, I can't buy it because it still has that association. Other would say, others would say, well, uh, I'm free in Christ to eat this food because it no longer has that uh, connection because that ritual is over. Here in Revelation, it is very likely talking about eating the food sacrificed to the idols while it's being sacrificed to the idols. And in Thyatira, there were a number of guilds. Again, it was an industrial city. You were like a fabric maker or a bronze worker or whatever it might be. And in your guild, you had a specific deity that you would worship to help you, uh, what you believed would help you to accomplish your work, to be productive, to have good sales. And so these guilds would get together and worship their particular deity and uh, then believe that they would be successful if they worshiped the deity well. And what Jesus sees as a problem is that he is the one to be worshiped. You shall have no other gods before him. And people would go and, and worship these other gods and then also worship Jesus. And that's what Jezebel was telling the church it's okay to do. It's okay, she said, to believe in Jesus, but then practice sexual immorality. It's okay to believe in Jesus and then on the side worship these other gods or make your sacrifices to these other gods. It's the way to get ahead in business and isn't that what life is really all about? And Jesus said no. Jesus said life is about serving God. Life is about putting God first and not allowing yourself any compromise with worldly thinking. And really, the main thing Jezebel taught in today's language is tolerance. And Jesus said, no. And we say, what? Tolerance is the highest value in our culture. Tolerance is the most important thing you can have. We, we love the idea that we, we have tolerance for everybody, all kinds of different people. And Jesus says, no? What, does Jesus want us to, to hate other people? And a key to understanding this, I'm sure you already know this, but tolerance as a word has changed in its meaning over the years. It used to mean you know that you're pretty sure that you're right or you're confident that you're right and someone else you are pretty sure is wrong and yet you love them and you care about them and you tolerate them. But tolerance in our common uh, everyday language now for many people means you say, 
I know I'm right, or I think I might be right, but I know you have, a, you have some right to your thinking too, and, and everything you think is just as valuable as everything I think, and, and we'll just get along. We'll get along because what we will agree upon is that there's nothing really true enough to think is true for everybody. G.K. Chesterton, a, a student of society, way back, decades ago, said, Tolerance is the virtue of a person without convictions. And I think he would say today that tolerance is the virtue of a culture without convictions. If we believe that every truth claim is equally valid, if we believe that every philosophy is equally good, if we believe that every way of living is just as good as anyone else's way of living, then we will be tolerant, but we will have no place for ultimate truth. The ultimate truth that God is God and we were created to worship and serve God. So, Jesus says, don't tolerate this message of tolerance from Jezebel. The funny thing is, if you've noticed, and I'm sure you have, those who are most uh, actively preaching the message of tolerance are the least tolerant of anyone who has an idea that there is a truth claim that is ultimately true. So the whole philosophy upon which so much of our culture is built is a faulty one. It does not work because they say that there's no ultimate truth and yet they say that the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. And in saying that, they are saying that there's an ultimate truth. You get that? And it doesn't work. And we say there is an ultimate truth that is not that there is no ultimate truth. Our belief in an ultimate truth is that there is an ultimate truth, and that ultimate truth comes from God. And therefore, we want to live our lives in service to God and be faithful to God. Now, that's when the older definition of tolerance comes in. We know that God exists. We know that Jesus Christ lived and suffered and died and rose and ascended to God's right hand and is interceding for us. We know this. We have deep convictions of this truth and we have many reasons to believe this truth. And we acknowledge that many people don't. Our job as believers is not to be intolerant in the old definition of those people who have a different worldview, but it is also not to be tolerant of those people in the new definition of, because that would mean that we do not believe that Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, and God is our creator. What we need to do is know that this truth is true. It is foundationally, eternally, unequivocally true. But treat those who don't, have not yet received it with grace and mercy and kindness, not with judgment and cruelty. That is 
the path we navigate. It is one of those difficult tensions that we find throughout Scripture of love and grace on one side and God's judgment on the other. It is a hard thing to hold these things in tension. And what happens more often than not is that you have a church that decides that they are all about God's righteousness and therefore it is easy for them, or maybe an individual, easy for them to criticize the rest of the world and be somewhat angry about it. People who work very hard to maintain holy lives and therefore they can't stand people who aren't holy like them. And then, you have the churches and individuals who are so much about love that they, they forget that one day we will stand before God in judgment. And they, they, it's easy. It's easy to be on either side of this. It's easy to be angry and judgmental toward the world. And it's easy to say, oh, God is just love and everything is okay. And marry God's love with the modern definition of tolerance but it is not faithful to God's word. And to this church at Thyatira, Jesus says, you are good at being faithful, but don't be deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived because, and this is the hard part, that people-pleasing pastors don't want to even read. God is gracious to give Jezebel time to repent. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, there are all kinds of threats of judgment, but the whole thing is written so that the people will repent. God's goal is for people to repent. But if she does not, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And isn't it interesting that the word here is a bed when she's accused of being an adulterous person, the bed goes from a bed of iniquity to a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. We don't know if that's her biological children or just those, of those who follow her. And then the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. There is a tension in Scripture between God's holiness and God's love. And if we are going to be faithful to God's word, we need to hold that tension to remember God is always ready to forgive. God is always ready to receive anyone, anyone, anyone into his grace but God is also the ultimate judge and his judgment will be severe. And when we hold those two in tension, we can live lives that are truly faithful. And Jesus says if we don't hold that intention, we will be failing as a church. A lot of people, I think, fall into the trap of doing this both-and kind of Christianity, a degree of worldliness and a degree of faithfulness. they faithful at church, but cheating or lying or whatever over here, and God doesn't seem to do anything about it. We get away with it, and we think, well, God doesn't really care. 
But scripture tells us that God is patient, and God's patience leads, or should, to repentance. So don't be fooled by getting away with things for a season. God is still the judge. And God will, if you turn to him, always receive you in grace. Live in that grace. But live hanging on to the truth and not letting yourself be sidelined or pulled away from the truth by the lies of the age or by the lies of your own heart and spirit. I, I, I almost forgot to title this sermon. Um, you know it's been various songs, most of them from the 80s because that's the stuff I know. Um, but this one I went back for some of you who are a little more advanced in, in years. Um, and and I, found that, I found that basically right in the text here it says, Hold on to what you have until I come. So let's hang on to what we've got. Because we've got a lot. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for your word to us. The parts that we love and embrace and give us great hope and security but also the parts that challenge us because you know us way better than we know ourselves. You know what is good for us and you know what is bad for us and even though sometimes the bad feels good and the bad feels like it's a good combination with our faith, you say it is not. And ultimately, what you say is right and will be proved right. Help us, Lord, if there is anything in our lives that is flirting with disobedience to you, or maybe outright disobedience to you, and we think we're getting away with a, a both-and kind of Christianity, worldly and Christian, remind us that this ultimately will catch up to us. And help us, Lord, to be more and more and more faithful to you, to your word, to your truth, and discover how glorious it is to live in fellowship with you that is not marred by our sinfulness, but helps us to grow more and more like you each day and anticipate with great confidence the glory that will be revealed in us when Jesus Christ returns to reign for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.